know what I'm thinking, though? What? It's been so long since we've done this, I may forget how to work the board. <laughs> Listening to the Dumb Will Speak, the podcast in which we seek to honor the truth of God as revealed in His Word. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Dumb Will Speak. It's been so long, Jalen. What'd you say, July third? July third was the last time we actually recorded, and so yeah, it's it's been a bit. It, um, I guess, we took our built-in month hiatus that was unplanned. I know, almost two months now, hiatus that was unplanned. <laughs> well, it was vacation time for, for me and the family, and uh, who knows, at the at the age that my children are at, and the fact that they don't live at home anymore, it was nice to take a trip, the four of us, and we went to uh, uh, the Redneck Riviera, everybody knows what that is, I guess, uh, Gulf Shores, Alabama, and we went down. Oh, that's the, that whole peninsula, the yeah, Panama and all that. We went that. down into there, and uh, it, was, uh, it was really nice. It was quiet. Uh, beach was a little more crowded than I usually remember because we go to a private beach and it was, there was at a resort. It was a little more crowded than normal, but uh, everybody was nice and polite. Uh, it's a bad time to go to Walmart down there. There's no good time. I think one 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 night, the first night we were there, we decided to go ahead and get some groceries, and uh, so we didn't have to go out to eat for like every meal. And we waited in line for an hour and a half to get to a register. No kidding. That's why you do grocery pickup. <laughs> Should have done that. That's why you do grocery pickup. We do it all the time. And today, I guess, on the topic, something you and I had... Um, had on our list since the yeah. very first pilot episode. Was hermeneutics. Yeah, since July of last year when we when we, we recorded that. That was on the list of seven or eight things that I said we would get around to doing eventually. And we've covered most of those topics. And now we've, we're getting to hermeneutics. And then the world blew up and many other <laughs> things had to be covered between then and now. So... Yeah. So we decided to run with biblical hermeneutics today, and <clears throat> the the treacherous path that most take. To be frank, I mean, yeah. most time the hermeneutics is not applied; it's not used. It's I mean, the term is thrown around as though it's a joke. It seems like, and uh, it's just a sad state of most churches to use the word hermeneutic and then, in no way, shape, form, or fashion, practice hermeneutics. I oh mean, yeah. Oh, you know, there've been and there's. And during the time we've been off, you know, you know, there've there've been more things with the SBC. There've been more things with with the world at large and the church at large. But this is not really the episode where we're really going to cover that. But it's it's been a kind of a it continues to be, in my opinion, the American evangelical church on a downhill spiral. Well, the I just saw this week, and I think you and I talked about it. Uh, Pastor Tom Buck out of Texas. Uh, NAM, the North American North American Mission Board, um, they have done some church plants in Colorado, and one of those church plants, which so it would be an SBC affiliate, uh, has a woman pastor. So yeah. the snowball is gaining effect; it's gaining ground; it's gaining traction, and it's running rampant. I mean, the question: how How long do you stay? You know, the old and, song: Do and, you stay or and, do you and go? And I know that we have we probably have listeners who wouldn't agree with us on that. There are plenty of people that are what's called egalitarian in their view. Um, I'm not. I'm complementarian. I believe that's the proper biblical mode of life, not just and not just at church. It's that way with the home and everything else. He created males first. He gave them responsibilities and roles, and he holds them personally responsible as spiritual heads of, of the household. And the amount of people that voted for Ed Litton, knowing his background, is just staggering to me. I don't. I don't know how you vote for Lytton. What was the message this? you told me about? Was it last week or or early this week that you'd heard more recently since the last time we've talked? Where he said something. 
Oh, that uh, David raped Bathsheba. Yeah, yeah, And it yeah. was basically, she was a victim. And, and you and I had a long discussion about that. Scripture really doesn't tell us in either direction. No, it doesn't. That's just putting politics in there. It, it just forced, well, it goes along with what we're talking about. It forced a hermeneutic that's not there. Yeah, and you can speculate. We, we did. I did say that I feel like that passage is open to interpretation, but every interpretation should be couched with, this is my opinion, this is well, not... You can, you can you cannot say this is this is truth. He preached it as if it was. This is it's the end of this discussion. Yeah, and that that's the scary part about it is when you force an idea into scripture. Yeah, because I've said this many times and it's got me in trouble. Frankly, around here with the 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 uh, fundamental crowd, which well they don't don't care much for me anyway, but it's got me in trouble with the fundamental crowd of me saying there is one meaning of scripture, but there's thousands of applications, but those applications have to be derived from that, from that meaning. And, you know, we, we've heard people read a verse of scripture and say, I want to concentrate on this word, whatever that word may be. And the next thing you know, we're off to the races talking about something that that passage isn't even addressing. Correct. Now what they say and what, what they're saying in that, in, in that uh, sermon, man, I don't even want to use the term sermon. What they're saying in that, conversation or whatever you want to call Speech. it, the diatribe. Yeah. And that diatribe is maybe true. Uh, but they but didn't also, get it from that passage. They didn't get it from that passage. And um, it, it's a sad reality. It's a sad state of the church. And and then uh, you take people like John MacArthur that exposit the word, and they just can't stand him. I yeah. mean, and uh, you take you know the Lawsons, the Balcoms, the, the, the Paul Washers, they, frankly, they can't stand them. And... What happens is I'm gonna I'm gonna start off with this clip because this is kind of what you run into uh, in some circles is and we have played this before but I don't think you guys could hear it uh, really well right and what we're going to play is this basically you do not dispute the mog and if you know what the mog is that's the man of God so my saying is you have to have a mog Which in is the, the hog <laughs> reading the wog that's kind of my by saying that man of God, house of God, word of God. Well, and we also come up with the smog, which is the sweet music of God, which happens to be hymns. So, so I guess you could say, do not question a mog from the Broadman hymnal, nineteen forties edition. Do not question a mog in a hog. Reading the wog well, only if they sing the smog. Yeah. I guess is where yeah, we could we go. go with that. There we go. But I want to play this. This guy is um, just—he's arrogant. I mean, this is this is arrogance at its best. Go for it. Nobody has ever come up to me and tried to talk me out of what I've said in the pulpit. Nobody's been that dumb. They clearly can tell. There's a man. He means what he says. And that's why preaching needs to be preaching and not teaching. They don't know about us. Preaching We're dumb enough comes with ask. some earnestness to it. We are titled The Double the Speak. speak. It's the, <laughs> it's so, the name of the podcast. Here we are. Yeah. Uh, and we're questioning that. And mug. I'm questioning your whole statement yeah. there. So this is what happens, and you and I have discussed this many times. This is what happens is you have that guy behind the pulpit, it's very Catholicism light, light he's, he's, you know, he's elevated. As he's elevated himself as a quote unquote preacher, which they do not like. Plurality of elders is is what you and I have discussed many times that we agree with. There's some accountability to be had there. So this guy is the man of God. Did he call himself the man of God? There, I know he has. I don't believe it. I don't think he did, but I know he has in the past. So there's the man of God, and he gets direct revelation either from scripture or whatever, but God impresses it. But then he conveys that nobody is dumb enough to question back what he said. And, and his interpretation basically is infallible the way they come across. You cannot question my interpretation, even though my interpretation may not be derived from anything to do with scripture and context. And through that being said, you're going to hear something for, we're going to say roughly the first time because we tried to play through this before and we found out we were really doing our podcast off the air um, and we decided to back up and start this. Um, a week or two ago, I believe it was, I think it was last week, I believe it was uh, maybe last weekend, I think it was a week ago Saturday, there was a debate at a church between a gentleman from the uh, Reform podcast, I think it's the Recovering Fundamentalist, I believe is the podcast. 
Um, You've mentioned him before. I've mentioned him before. And uh, he goes into the lion's den, and he debates a gentleman by the name of... You know, every time I think I'm fully recovered, you'll pull a sound clip up or talk about something someone said, or James White will will play something on his podcast, or someone will mention something that just starts it all over again, and I have PTSD from it. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Woo. Yeah. and 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 I the gentleman's I said name, before I was raised a fundamentalist. The gentleman's name that uh, that that went into the the lion's den is uh, Nathan. And like I said, he, they have a podcast. I would certainly go over there and and give that a listen and uh, give those guys a a listen. They do a good job. They're, they're they're there's a whole movement helping abuse recover out of the out of these fundamental churches. The more you dig. The more abuse you see... A lot of spiritual, psychological, emotional abuse. Absolutely. And yeah. that's you're, you're, there, there is a whole movement out of that, that that there's been some good work being done out of that. And, and Nathan, Nathan goes in, he goes into the lion's den, and he goes into a fundamental church, debates a King James-only fundamentalist in a church pretty much packed Two probably from the looks of the crowd, a couple hundred people with KJVO. With KJVO, with the exception of probably ten or twelve, which some of those were his family. And the moderator was the pastor of the church. Pastor right? of the church, King James only yeah, as it can so get. He is, he is as well. I mean, and and guys, I know that we're southern and we have a an accent, but even I'm taken aback by a few of the uh, some of the slurred speech and the southern uh, vernacular that goes on in this because you played a bit of it for me a while ago, and I was like, whoa. Well, we're going to try to get through this, so. <laughs> We're going to make an attempt. It's Mitch has about a five-minute window here that he is going to read a verse, talk about a verse. He's going to define hermeneutics, and then he is off to the races. I've had the joy of listening to this. This will be the fourth time now. Here we go. So we'll go to number three then. All right, number three is this question. Which line of manuscripts are the most trustworthy and accurate? Speaking of manuscripts where uh, all versions come from, whether it's the King James Bible or any other, any other version of the Bible, which line of manuscripts are the most trustworthy and accurate? Uh, the Alec- I just caught something that I didn't catch earlier. He, they've stopped calling it the KJV that you and I talked about, and now it's the King James Bible, not the King James Version. Oh, yeah. I, I, you know, that's the big push now is oh, it's, yeah. it's King James Bible. Sorry, I didn't. I just Andrew in Egyptian texts or... The Antiochian and Syrian text. Uh, who went first last time? It's your turn to go first this time. It's your first? Okay. All right. Uh, which line of manuscripts are the most trustworthy and accurate? The Alexander Egyptian text or the Antiochian Syrian text? Oh, it's brother. I'm sorry. You, yeah, you went. Yeah, that's brother, correct. Brother, you just brother, brother. Now it's time for you to pick it back up. Which, which line of manuscripts are the most trustworthy and accurate? The Alexandrian Egyptian text or the Antiochian Syrian text. All right, Brother Mitch. In your Bible in Acts chapter 6, for those of you that have been to Bible college and studied hermeneutics. That's your King James Bible and Bible college, not the cemetery. I mean seminary. Bible college. We, we, we actually said that off. <laughs> Off and that's why I said, recording. That's why I just said, "Come on, just let's just hit record so, because we're already doing the podcast without anybody else hearing it." We spent about ten or fifteen minutes trying to figure out the difference between Bible college and seminary, and the best thing we could come up with is fundamentalism. Yes, one exactly. One teaches one teaches by one one teaches things of scripture. It teaches how to interpret how you know how to develop all these ideas, not not ideas, but how to interpret scripture. That's yeah, the main goal. Which is and then Bible college basically teaches you how to interpret the King James how to, and how to defend it and all the rules and regulations and man-made items attached to it. And I'm going abs- the traditions, yeah. the traditions that come out of that fundamental heritage. That frankly remind me of the Pharisees. Yeah. So here's Mitch talking about uh, talking about Bible college. Word came from Hermes, who was the Greek god of interpretation. Biblical hermeneutics. There's some laws. You want to go ahead and talk about Hermes? Or- Hermes was the messenger god. Um, if you're if you're familiar with the Roman god Mercury. 
the idea of if you if you've ever seen the FTD floral thing and you have the little the little sprite of the of, of guy with the um, the the helmet on his head that has wings on it and he has wings on his feet that's the Roman uh, depiction of the Greek god Hermes. Not to know. be confused with the tire symbol that has a little wings line. Right. Sorry, yeah. On. And and in addition I'm to off that, the rail here. in addition to that, if you were um, if you if you're a comic book fan and you read Wonder Woman. Uh, that all that stuff comes from Greek mythology, and so Hermes was the god of speed because he was the messenger god, and he would come to humans, to mankind, and give the word of Zeus to mankind. He's the messenger god. I don't know where they get interpretation, actually, but whatever. Moving on. That apply to Bible study that cannot be refuted. Uh, one of the laws in biblical hermeneutics, along with you never take an incomplete statement uh, over uh, a complete statement. That's their argument for the shorter ending of Mark, the, the woman taken into adultery in John chapter 8, because they're saying that's a shorter ending. They don't particularly like the shorter ending, so they call it a quote-unquote incomplete statement. Yeah. And a text without a context is a pretext you see the king james translators translated according to context they did not translate uniformly greek and hebrew words they translated according to context the word i believe mitch is looking for is semantic domain which he is doing a horrible job at defining Correct. absolutely terrible job at defining yeah i'll go into that just a little bit later but he never goes into it but, <laughs> thanks uh, for the warning in Acts chapter 6, you find two cities mentioned there. And when you look at those two cities, oh, there is Stop. a law in hermeneutics called the law of first mention. Oh, that's no. where I wanted to get to. No, there is not. Um, this is a fallacy that pervades amongst uh, certain evangelical crowds. They would uh, Actually, they wouldn't call themselves evangelical. Some would call themselves evangelical. Others would just flat out say fundamentalist is this idea of the law of first mention. If you don't know what the law of first mention is, it's okay. Wherever a word or term is used in the Bible for the first time, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New, follow that line. Sort of like if you were to take a Strong's Concordance or any 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 concordance or dictionary, follow every mention in the, in, in the Bible and how it's used. But this is only based on the King James Bible, first off. Bible. They don't say version anymore, like you said. And it's based on their view of what that word meant the first time it was used. So from there on out, you have to use that and, and assume that that means that, that you must always use that. You have to adhere to that strict definition every time. That's not how language works, folks. We've talked about semantic domain many times. The, the word run, and I know we've used this term before in the English language, can, be, can, can illustrate so many things, including a, quote, run for election or a running a race or, or anything else. Or I'm running ragged, meaning I don't feel well. This, this, this sort of thing is, I'm, you know, I'm stressed out. That this sort of thing is simple to the nth degree. They want everything to be kept simple and short so they can their, their, their finite brain can understand the infinite. We're supposed to try to understand God as he is, and he is infinite. Correct? Yes. Infinite being and a God of spirit. He's not flesh and blood like us, except in the form of, of Christ. We, <laughs> we're trying to explain things in, in the most simplistic way possible, and let's face it, it's dumb. It's ignorant, and it's ignorant well, of the way language works, whether it be Greek Latin, Hebrew, Aramaic, English, Old English, Middle English, Modern English. Well, you even take this statement. Okay, let, let's say we, we look outside today, and it would have been a January day, and it's snow out there. And, it, and we, we, look, we say the statement, man, it, something as white as snow. Yeah. So we understand that because we rarely but do have snow here where we're at. But if we go somewhere far south and you know, South America. Below the equator. Below the, below the equator. They may not know what... That, that statement is irrelevant to them. Well, they, they have no idea what that is. Take the Irving Berlin as sung by Bing Crosby classic, White Christmas. In many parts of the world, they don't understand that. They White do not Christmas, understand that. You go to Australia, New Zealand, Christmas is in December. That's that's summer. That's summer. You know, you know <laughs> so they don't understand that. No, and, and that's the thing. And he mentions... What did he call it? The law of first mentions? First mentions. Yes. I have a book. Actually, I have several. This is just the one that I grabbed. And you brought the one that I have, which you actually gifted me, and I didn't realize, I didn't remember that you'd gifted it. Well, I gifted you because I'm a dunce, and I needed the third edition and not the second edition. And so, I had the second edition. And this has been a while. It's been a while. you had this class over a year ago. So, hermeneutics, 
was a class at uh, at Liberty where I attend, and um, we had a book called Introduction to Biblical Interpretation Interpretation by William Klein, Craig Blomberg, and Robert Hubert. There's my boy Blomberg. I like him. This book is before I give you a, a exact number. It is several. Looks like seven hundred something pages. Right. I've read this book cover to cover. I skimmed through it this morning looking. Biblical hermeneutics, right? Biblical hermeneutics. I looked in the section that deals with hermeneutics. That it, The whole book is hermeneutics, basically. I don't see the law first mentioned in here. No. Uh, and and I, I was going to look at the glossary here. Because it's a very narrow, ultra-conservative view, American view of inter- biblical interpretation. And it, again, it's what I said. This idea that you take however that word is used the first time, it's going to have a symbolic meaning. They especially use this, by the way, in dispensationalism. I don't know if you know that. Oh, no. We're dispens- oh, you, yeah. you give yeah. him a second. Okay, you, okay. I, I, I didn't you, know. I've not you, heard you, the rest you of You this. give him a second because he's getting ready to get to the Laodicean church age that we're in now. Oh, okay. Because, see, this is as far as I've heard the, of the, Yeah, of the, this of is the it. Thing. Which you and I would reject. I don't, I don't, I don't like. There's. If I if I were to take those seven churches mentioned in Revelation, Revelation, if we were to drive anywhere around here, we're going to most likely find a church that would fit into one of those categories. Anywhere, I don't I don't know if I've I've always heard it. Well, we're in the Laodicean Church Age. I mean, I, I, I'm I, <laughs> no, you know, I don't I don't I don't really go with that. And some people do. I mean, it's okay. I, I personally don't. But this, well, you book, know what they're basing that on is the America First. It is form of hermeneutic. And again, okay, well, it let comes me back to. The American church may be Laodicean in its in its outlook right now. It may be falling away. It may be apostatizing. But there's there's great revivals in other parts of the world right now. Well, and, and here's our thing. You and I talk about it too. But for some reason, we take the American, we'll just call it the American hermeneutic. And I don't mean to sound like I'm backtracking on things I've said about CRT because I don't I haven't changed my opinion on that. But they, it's a very white it's a very ethnocentric view. Everything is very white, very European, very Western European, very North American. It's this idea that if if Western Europe and North America, if white people are falling apart and abandoning God, then the whole world's abandoning God. That's simply not true, folks. Well, and, and what I was saying was we take Jesus and we wrap him some reason in the American flag yep. and we... We become escapism with he's a the white, rapture. And again, he's a white Jesus wrapped in American flag, which James White was just talking about the other day. He was a brown man, <laughs> a Mediterranean, Middle Eastern brown man. He's not white. And we, we do all that, and then we base everything that fits into our cultural interpretation. We forget what is normative in our culture, maybe that be normative in another culture, and we forget that because right now, if you're saying that the Antichrist comes and we're guaranteed escapism because that's what Scripture promises, how do I look an Afghan Christian right now in the face and say there's a rescue coming from the persecution as they are about to be slaughtered by the hundreds of thousands? Because the Taliban because has the taken Taliban over. Because the Taliban has yeah. taken over. You know, you, I just, you and I have talked about the rapture many times. I've, I've many years ago, moved away from a pre-trib rapture. I moved away from it long ago. I've, I'm... I'm more of a post-trib guy when it comes to that. I, I, I just don't think American Christians, I, I, while it's nice to think of a pre-trib, I just don't think we're, we're excused to get out of the persecution. I, I just don't. I mean, the apostles were persecuted. Everybody throughout Scripture was persecuted. Why are we any different? Well, look, a, a teacher that I, always admi- that I always liked, and, and I still do, I'll still listen to his stuff occasionally, Chuck Missler, who is a part of that law of first mentions thing, by the way, because he's brought it up before in some of his teaching, uh, particularly when it comes to prophecy. Um, that That's where he seems to more or less fit with it is on prophecy, because in other times he's, like a lot of people, he actually contradicts himself when you, when you get right down to it, because you can't hold to a really strict interpretation law of certain things because we all know that the semantic domain of a word does change, and he talks about that. He talks about all the different ways that, that there is symbology and that there is use of metaphor and simile and synecdoche and all the other stuff within within the Bible. So you can't say that it, it's always a word for you have to have a you have to have a literal word for word view of hermeneutics because he once jokingly said he was asked, "So you take the Bible literally?" And he said, "No, but I take the Bible seriously." Yes, some things are symbolic. Obviously, some things are allegory. Some things are metaphor some things are meant to give us apocalyptic language that something is st- but as he said but i do believe 
those symbols stand for something. It's Genre. trying to figure out what they are. There's there's different genres. Yes, exactly. And you have to interpret based upon the genre, on the genre. that you're reading. Yeah. So, what applies in one ver in one portion of scripture may not, but the but, uh, may not because it, we're reading an apop apocalyptic. Apocalyptic. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, look how look how the Old Testament is. Broken. How did that? Look how the Old Testament is broke up. We have prose that there's is strictly laws, narrative, right? We have mm -hmm. parts of Genesis are strictly narrative. Some parts of Genesis are also poetic. Yes. And some parts of Genesis have embedded within them little bits of prophecy. Now, that's just Genesis. That's one book. You get further into that, then you have law and 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 historical censuses and all these other things from, from Exodus, you Leviticus, Numbers, up to Deuteronomy. You have a retelling of the law. You have almost like a, a summation of everything from Exodus up through Deuteronomy, starting all over again in Deuteronomy. That's why it's called Deuteronomy. It means second law. So, well, and then you look, you get into the look at Chronicles and Kings. It's a whole history, and section. that's just narrative, and that's, that's historical just narrative. Historical narrative, and so you interpret based upon what you to get to the New Testament. We have Psalms got, and Proverbs, which are literary. You have Job. Job is both a story, but it's and prosaic in certain parts, but it's actually a poem. And there are people that say Job is one gigantic um, parable mm -hmm. that that is used to illustrate. Because I mean, we know we don't know, but. Signs point to Job was the oldest book written because we have no mention. It's the only book with no mention of the law. Yeah, there is no mention of the law in the book of Job. So we have to look at that. And yet, already there was the promise of resurrection, of, yes. sal of salvation. I know my Redeemer lives. All those things are there. Uh, so already we know that at least through oral trans transmission from Adam on down through Noah and even afterwards. There had been the oral transmission of the law of God. There was sacrifice because Job goes and makes sacrifices. He was he, he intercedes was, on the behalf of his children. No, that you look at his flock that it mentions. I mean, he had a vast pastoral enterprise because he had I don't remember the number, but it was a vast amount of sheep that yep. would have been used in the sacrifice. And, and a lot of people, I, I I think Job was real. I think it's a real story of a real man that lived. Oh, in I that do time. believe he was a real man, but I do think it's also meant to be something that just teaches us. As sure, well. I do too. Uh, but I believe it was, and I think he was around the time of Abram. I, I think he was kind of around the, they were on the scene roughly at the same time. Interesting where he's from. He's from Samaria. Yeah, he from is. From that area. And uh, so we we run to this, and I, and I, I think I want to stop for a moment, and I want to basically, as we're listening to this, I want to say. By the way, not Samaria, S-A-M-A. -A. That's later. That's north North Kingdom of of, of Israel. I meant Sumeria. I, it may have come out as Samaria, but S-U-M-E-R. He was Sumerian, you know, Chaldean. In other words. When we talk about hermeneutics and we look at hermeneutics, there is a very uh, important thing to remember, and that is to, when we look at a portion of Scripture, we have an author, and we have an audience. Paul writes to the Romans. Paul writes to Timothy. When 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 James writes, he's writing. He tells us who he's writing in the very opening verses. He's writing to those Jews that are, have been dispersed. So we then have to go. Okay, there was this author who wrote this epistle, and it was meant for this audience. And, and so we then have to are left in our day and time. Some two thousand plus years later, we are now picking up the pieces, reading a letter that was written that we don't really know either one of the two. We, 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 don't, we, we know who it was, and we know through historical, we can kind of tie it in with the book of Acts, and we can tie it in with just history in itself between Josephus and Philo, and we can kind of tie all this in, and we can begin looking at historical. So now we're left picking up the pieces going, okay, what did this writer mean to these people, and how does that meaning that he meant apply today? That's what we've got to do. Yeah. And there are laws, like we said, that go with it. This is not one of them. Well, let's, let's define our term. And this comes from Oxford Languages. If you were to look it up on Google, it's going to be your, your opening page, okay, from the dictionary on hermeneutics. It is the branch of knowledge that deals with interpretation, especially of the Bible or literary texts. Wikipedia calls it the theory and methodology of interpretation, especially the interpretation of biblical text, wisdom literature, and philosophical text. Hermeneutics is more than an interpretive principle or method used when immediate comprehension fails and includes the art of understanding and communication. 
How do you get that point across? Now, we, a term we use a lot, we talk about preaching and we talk about expository, we call it, we call it exegesis. There's this idea of, sometimes I think people confuse the two. You know, what is the difference between them? Are they the same thing? They're not exactly the same thing. Uh, they are related. You know, hermeneutics, hermeneutics, hermeneutics is your, again, your, your basis, your theory of interpretation. Exegesis is a basically breaking down that text by word, word by word, studying that word and explaining the meanings and definitions of those words within the text. Within, and in so explain eisegesis. There's another term that we call eisegesis, which is... It comes from the term of isos, and, and we actually get our word isolation from that, and... It's where you isolate a word or a thought of your own and you insert into the text. So exegesis is is exo, right? Bra mm -hmm. Drawing out. Drawing out meaning. Iso is inserting or pushing into meaning. You put yourself into the text in a, in a way because you say, I have an agenda and I'm going to make this verse, <laughs> I'm going to make this verse say what I want it to say. You, I'll, you use a term all the time on this show, hermeneutical gymnastics. Yeah. You're forcing a hermeneutic based on what you want it to mean. That's eisegesis. Then there's one that I, I'm not going to say I termed it. I'm sure it was termed way before me. There's one I say all the time, snarsegesis, too, that basically you just read yourself into every single text that you preach, teach, and talk about. Somehow you can find yourself there, and you're an example for everything. So not that we've ever heard that before. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> But that is another one. So let's continue. Get back to the uh, video. Let's continue with Mitch here. When something's mentioned one time, it follows the pattern all through the scriptures. In Acts chapter 6, you find some, uh, some, some dispute over there over serving tables. So they chose out men who became deacons. And those men were full of the Holy Ghost and faith. Can, can I pause? Yeah. Because I just caught something else. He just... Really defines the role of deacons as servants. Yeah. But then I guarantee you as in a fundamental church that they don't have the role of servants. They have the role of authority. Minus teaching. So they have a rule over everything that goes on. They're the board of directors under the CEO pastor. And they just are the yes men to the pastor that do what they want. They do not have the qualifications of teaching, which would qualify them to be an elder. So he basically just gives the definition of these are the servants of the church. And there are qualifications. You know, a one woman man. Not the husband of one wife. They are essentially the same thing as to be a leader. Yeah. But they're not performing the same they're role. They're not performing the same role. So he just give a definition of something that he doesn't practice. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. And you have them named there in Acts chapter 6, first couple verses. One of those men was from Antioch. That's the first time you find the word Antioch mentioned in your Bible. Antioch's letter, later mentioned as becoming the place where... Disciples were first called Christians, Acts 11, 26. If you study your Bible in Acts 11, 12, 13, you'll find that real Bible teaching and missionary movement and real Bible Christianity went out from Antioch, Syria. Did real Bible Christianity not start with Jesus and his teaching and then to the apostles? Did it, so it just began here? So, um, so Acts chapter 2, which came four chapters earlier, it, where it was in No, Jerusalem. no, no, he's in 10, 11, 12. Well, oh, that's right. Yeah, he's in but, 10, 11, 12. Well, he started in chapter 6, and now suddenly No, no, he said, in, yeah, what he said was in 10, 11, 12, we see the first Christian going out. Yeah, So again, but he skipped some things. He skipped a lot. and Including Acts chapter 2, in which it actually is in Jerusalem, and it moves outward from there. He skips the whole Paul. Because he's got it. Oh, they've got this real mystical view of what this is all about, and I know what it's going to well, go to. Well, this is my problem with allegory, too. Mm -hmm. I, you know my stance on allegory. I do not like an allegorical approach to Scripture. I like a literal approach. There are allegories used, sure. but don't let the allegories override the, the plain meaning of the text. Anyway, go ahead. Disciples were persecuted in Jerusalem. God told them to go out, and they wouldn't go out. They liked safety in numbers. So God had to send persecution. Persecution and at the stoning of Stephen, said, Get them out. And uh, had to uh, uh, move them out, and, and like God told all Christians to do. He did the same thing in your Baptist history uh, out of Sandy Creek with Shubal Stearns and the 600 people that was in that church. He sent persecution 
for Governor Tryon here in the state of North Carolina to cause the Baptists to have to, to, uh, to have to support Anglican babies. We have really made some leaps and bounds at this point. We have really leaped over, we have leaped over Ignatius, Polycarp, you know, Polycarp, burnt, all this persecute. We have just totally leaped over it and went straight to, somehow we got North Carolina. It's the from, trail of blood thing. I know it it's is. I know it is. It's that the only good Christians were the ones that you can try to find a way to pigeonhole them into Baptist theology. Go ahead. Uh. Sprinklers. And the Baptist said, we won't do it. So persecution came. Benjamin Merrill. Uh, when he had sprinklers, he didn't mean the overhead. He meant the baby, baby sprinklers. I just right. wanted everybody to know what was going on there. Uh, was hung at his plantation up here in Jersey, Jersey Baptist Church up in... Baptists always been persecuted. The man was just a Baptist wanting to serve God. He didn't want his money to go to support baby sprinklers. I don't either. I'm a Baptist. I believe baptism by... I bet R.C. Sproul is his favorite historian and church theologian. You want to bet that? Oh, yeah. I bet he loves R.C. Sproul. I bet he loves the holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. Oh, my <laughs> word. R.C. was a Presbyterian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Baby sprinkler. All right, keep it going. For believers only. You said it doesn't do any damage. Well, it does plenty of damage. You got a lot of people going to hell today that think they're saved because they were sprinkled as a baby. But when that persecution came, the Baptists began to move out. And thank God they moved out and they got together at Antioch. And that's where the, uh, the after the Council of Jamnia, that's where the books of our Old Testament were formed. Put together with 27 books of the New Testament after John wrote the book of Revelation and pinned down his epistles. And pinned down his gospel in 90 AD. He didn't pin it down when he was on, the, he pinned it down when he was on the Isle of Patmos. That's the reason why much in the book of John matches of Paul's epistles. And so anyway, with that being said, the, the Bible be, began to, to, to move out and begin to move out. Well, you look at Acts chapter 6, and you find after Stephen preaching with the Holy Ghost and with the power of God, who was the first one that disputed with Stephen? Those that were uh, Cyrenians, Libertines. You folks know what a Libertine is? That's a man with loose morals. Now, we're going to stop right there. Okay. Because uh, we want to define that that is a total okay. wrong definition of that word. Yeah. Okay. Mer go ahead and get the New American Standard pulled up. It's it's Friedman. It, it, yeah. it, it, it is. Well, I'll, I was going to say, I was going to say you can read the verse. Hold on. I'll read it for you. That is verse 9, Acts 6, 9. Uh, let's back up and just read 8. And it says, And Stephen, full of grace power, was performing great wonders, signs among the people. But some men who are from the synagogue of the freedmen, including, then he mentions the two. Mm -hmm. But he, he calls them from the synagogue of freedmen. So in this, it looks like those two cities that were mentioned, which were, help me if I'm wrong, I didn't shut my Bible program down, uh, the Cretans and the Alexandrian. Yeah. It appears those were talking about the same ones, but this is talking about freed slaves, most likely the Jewish slaves this is one synagogue, not multiple synagogues, the synagogue of the freedmen. These slaves that were most likely Roman slaves that had been freed. Pulled this up from merriamwebster.com in their historical dictionary. It says, did you know the word libertine, which originally meant freedman, in quotes, when it appeared in 14th century English, that's the 1300s. That's almost, that's 250 to 300 years before the King James was published. Okay? So that's what? That's the use of the word that would have been around in Middle English. And I don't know if, you, if I've ever mentioned this before, but in the discussion of the King James, but a lot of the words from the King James, we call it the early modern English, but they were still using a lot of words that at that point were soon to be archaic, even then. Some were already archaic by the time, that, but they were included because they had been in the Bishop's Bible in the 1500s. I'm just saying. So this, these words, and one of those would be the Libertine. Libertine may already have been beginning to change over to what he's going to say it means, right? Sexually immoral. But it didn't mean that at the time that they were doing that. No. The, the, word they, the version they were using was for freedmen. When it appeared in 14th century English, traces to the Latin word libertus, a term that in Roman antiquity identified a slave who had been set free. And yes, the Latin root of libertine is liber, the ultimate source of our word liberty. Like you said, so we dare say we've got a semantic domain, and that semantic domain is could be somebody, what he said, with loose morals. Now, if you pull but up today's context, does definition, not allow that. Oxford defines it as this: 
Libertine, noun, a person, especially a man, who behaves without moral principles or a sense of responsibility, especially in sexual matters. Number two, second noun definition, a person who rejects accepted opinions in matters of religion, a free thinker. As an adjective, characterized by disregard of morality, especially in sexual matters, or two, free thinking in matters of religion. That's what it means today, and that's what it's meant for a few hundred years. In fact, there were a lot of people in the in the 16th and 17th century, 18th century, known as libertines. They were the philosophs of the Enlightenment, and even before that of the Age of Reason. These people were called libertines. A lot of them were immoral, unmarried men who rejected traditional uh, family life. A lot of them had sexual relationships with both men and women. A lot of them had multiple illegitimate children. They were rich. A lot of them had venereal diseases, etc., etc. They were your ultimate early hippie bohemians, okay, in Europe. That's where the word took that meaning. It didn't originally mean it. Just like today, when in, in the last uh, half century or so, the term gay has come to express the homosexual community, it didn't mean that. It meant gay was fun, frivolous, happy, a partier. That's what gay used well, to mean. So words change over time. Well, another one? I, did, I don't the know. The word probably... changed. The word used there, and that's what the King James meant it to mean, was a freed slave. Well, another one, you talk about words change. This is what come to mind. Dude. Oh, yeah. We use it now as a slang term to refer to somebody. That was a that was originally a, a ranch hand, basically. Yeah. A cowboy. I mean, you know, so words change over time. So context matters. Yeah. And so this context is talking about the free Jewish slaves. That's it's right. not talking about a loose moral man. And he was he was at their synagogue, he was debating with them. That that is one of these that I'm gonna to run to a strict definition and hold it to these lines and allow no room for no room for interpretation here. And the Alexandrians, Alexandrians disputing with Stephen, a man full of the Holy Ghost, and the men of Antioch. Amen. Your heritage, you wouldn't even have a heritage if it didn't come from Antioch. That's the reason I said on my podcast that every Bible believer that believes that line that came from, Alex, uh, came from Antioch, Syria, is an Antiochian Christian. My heritage comes from the Lord well, and Savior, Jesus Christ. It doesn't come from a city. Well, this is all traditional. This is the way I interpret it. This is the way it's going to be. We're going long, and I know where he's going to go with this. We might as well just wrap We're up what he's done. about to say. We're almost done. Let's just let him finish. In this age, we're Philadelphian church uh, Christians in the Laodicean church age. And, bud, it's rough. But if you think it's rough, wait till they start burning us at the stake. Wait till they start forcing us to take a vaccine. Mm, there you go. Wait till they tell you you're not going to receive your Social Security check if you don't take the vaccine. Or you can't visit the hospital. You can't go in the hospital. Folks, it's, we're, we're bearing down to it. When that time comes, you better have a book that you can depend on. Not in somebody's idea and opinion about that book. But what thus saith the word of the Lord, you better have it. So when you look at your Bible and where it came from, this King James Bible, this King James Bible, and I did not say the New King James, the New King James falsely called the majority text, doesn't come from the majority text. It came up from a perverted text, and it has Revised Standard Version readings all through the Old Testament, and it has American Standard Version readings all through the New Testament, and those manuscripts came from Alexandria, Egypt, through origin, through Rome, through uh, uh, and, and up into the Roman church, and into uh, uh, the Western church. And this book you got came from Antioch, Syria. Amen. Antioch, Syria, come through the Eastern Church, the Greek Church, had nothing to do with Rome. That's why the King James translator said, lest we be traduced by popish persons at home or abroad who malign us because we are poor instruments to be God's truth to yet be more and more known unto the people, unless we be maligned by self-conceited brethren who run their own ways and give a liking unto nothing which is framed by themselves and hammered on their anvil. Okay, he'll quote that aspect of their introduction, but he's not going to say anything about them saying multiple translations are good to have to read from, and that this was not a new translation, but making an old translation, and in fact, they admit a group, an amalgamation of three or four good translations into a better one. 
And it was better than those other translations. But it wasn't perfected, nor did they ever claim it was perfected. And they said any imperfections in it is on their fault and not from the, the, the text. And, and Mitch is pretty much done there. I'm not really going to give him any more of the floor than he's but, but, but he has a point. But, and here's the axe he's trying to grind. Alexandria, as a city in, in, in Egypt and as a Greek Hellenistic Jewish city, he's trying to say that that's where all the bad texts come from because of that one incident. And that's their point of view. And they'll sometimes talk about a few wonky church fathers or people from the first two or three centuries A.D. that had some bad views that were heretical. Yes, they were, but there were also people from Syria that had that had bad uh, wonky views as well. And Syria today is a Muslim country, so does that not prove that it didn't... Doesn't that somehow tell their eschatology that that wasn't good? Because how could it be a Muslim country today if it was once the godly nation? Well, and before that, they start that talking about That kind of the- stuff is dime store novel. It's cheap. Well- what they That's started, cheap hermeneutics. What they started talking about right before that was um, Erasmus, and he just praises Erasmus, and then just goes off the rail on somebody else was involved by Catholic, and I'm thinking Erasmus really? was a Catholic. I know that an and, ordained man. And I'm listening to this, and I'm going, hold up, just a minute. You just praised another guy, and then are just in order to get in order one. to get the first printing of his Greek text published and get it out there before the polyglot came out. He had to dedicate it to Pope uh, Leo or Gregory? Leo the Great, right? Mm, I don't remember. I can't remember. Whoever was Pope during the time of Martin Luther, and you know I should know this, but I, I'm, I'm totally, uh, just, just my brain just went bad on um, me. But anyway, he, he dedicates it to the Pope so that the Pope wouldn't, wouldn't get him in trouble for, wouldn't, wouldn't have him you know, brought before the council or even, or even excommunicated or worse, uh, persecuted, you know, imprisoned or, or executed. For publishing without a biblical text without uh, permission, because you had to have permission from the Pope, and he was a Catholic, and, and and was he slightly critical of the Catholic Church? Absolutely, he was critical of a lot of things, but he's also the guy that debated with Martin Luther on the bondage of the will versus freedom of the will and all that. Yeah, I mean, now Luther admired and respected Erasmus. Luther himself also a Catholic priest, a German Catholic priest, who then who then gets truly converted. And sets off the the bombshell of the ninety five theses, which which instituted, kind of instigated, I should say, the um, the, the uh, Reformation. What kind of time frame are we on? Well, we're already at fifty minutes. Okay, well, I, good. I've got, I've got time for something else. Here's the other thing that always bothers me. We we're, we apparently we're on the because this is dealing with King James. Well, we're obviously we've only scratched the surface of hermeneutics. We're going to have to have another episode. On but it. That, that's fine, and we can do it down the road. Do it next time. But I want to do this. Was the one that fascinated me that I found. I actually had this for our King James only episode and our fundamental episode. Numerology, mm-hmm. the 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 hermeneutic of numerology. Yeah. that is absolutely terrible because you've got to have verses, chapters. You've got to have only the King James. It does not line with the Greek text. Uh, but they, they built whole doctrines on this. And I, I, I want to play this, this guy on numerology. Peter Ruckman, he was one of the guys that started all that. Manna is mentioned in the Bible. We know that's in Exodus. I preached to you about the first time that the word manna is mentioned in the Bible. We know that's in Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16, the first time the word manna shows up in the Bible. Of course, we know that manna is bread, and bread is a type of the word of God. We know that on the table of showbread, there were uh, 12 loaves of bread. They were lined out six by six, uh, six by six, as in 66, as in 66 books of the Bible. You start in Genesis, and you've got 66 books ahead of you. You go to the 22nd book. It's short. Let it finish. It's short. Isaiah at the 23rd book. And you've got 22 books until you get to the end of Acts. At the book of Romans, you have 22 more books that go out through Revelation. And, and so the Hebrew alphabet is 22 letters. And God set this we thing are all up over the map. with three witnesses of 22 letters each. 22 books. And then he's going to repeat it. 22 books talking to different people about basically the same pattern. And then after after the book of Acts, you got 22 more books for a third witness. Uh, you remember Noah had three stories in the ark. God's got three stories in the ark. First mention 
words. Is my heart too? Uh, I'm just curious. In uh, verse number for four. And one plus one pay equals five. Close attention to every word. Then said the Lord unto Moses, quote, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. So that's the first time that phrase, I will rain bread from heaven for you. Give that man a throat lozenge, first off. That's actually his voice. I, I'm thinking something happened. and I, Well, so I'm he thinking, was screaming one day about I, something. I'm sure. Women wearing pants, probably. Uh, but, um... <laughs> I'm, I, I'm men with long hair. Okay, there's a. Oh, you know, guys who I'm pink. actually I'm gonna say this, and this happened to the us. NIV. Th- this happened to yeah, the bloodless Bible. Bloodless Bible. Uh, I'm gonna say this. This this happened to us. This is this is a true story. It did not involve either one of us. We did not have long hair. I mean, we got longer compared, but it's not like shoulder length hair. Yeah. But we attended church with two two gentlemen that did have longer hair. Uh-huh. One night, the pastor preached on lo- longer hair, men having longer hair. You remember this? Hmm. I, off air, I'll tell you who it was. Okay, but they preached on it. They come back Sunday. They preached on the Wednesday night, and then come back Sunday morning, and they both had a haircut. If you think long enough, oh, you can remember. Okay. You can remember this. They both come back and they had a haircut. I probably know who the two guys. Yeah, were. You yeah, you probably. And they pulled that haircut. Uh, but uh, so we have witnessed that one firsthand. And here's what I'm going to say. He, this all breaks down because in the Hebrew Bible, it wasn't put together like it is now. First off, there's no chapter and verse no. headings. Even the order that we see it is no. not the same. No. So no, the Tanakh, yeah. the, the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, is not even in the same book order. So... It does start Genesis through Deuteronomy. Of course, that's not the names for it. But Chronicles, I'm thinking, is the history of the last it's the book. End. It's the end. What we would call Second Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, is their final book. Is their final book, and, and so it it that hermeneutic. Mm-hmm. That's the reason I used it because it is a hermeneutic he's using. Yeah, it's a wrong hermeneutic. Yep, that hermeneutic he's using breaks down. Unless you have the King James. And then they'll go, Amen. That is what we're saying. That's actually incorrect. Because what you just told me was there apparently is no legit Bible yeah. prior to the sixteen eleven King which ironically they quote the sixteen eleven King James that they are never using the sixteen eleven. Oh, certainly they don't use the sixteen eleven. No, they couldn't read the I want to get one of those by the way. Wow. I've actually seen one and it um, was I saw a leather bound one back in the early nineties. When they first started, uh, when they, I think it was kind of early on when they were doing these uh, these repros, and uh, there's they have a one out that I want to say Hendrickson puts it out. That's a, just a hardcover. It's just simple. It's got a silk ribbon. It's a hardcover book. Nice creamy white paper, but it's kind of hard to read because of the Gothic print because it's literally a facsimile. It's, it's, it is. So it's got the Gothic print, and of course it's got the old spellings, which are wildly inconsistent. And look nothing like modern English. And so the font is so bad that I don't know that it would actually do me any good. Uh, you could get one where they've... You can get one where they have the 1611 text, but they have updated the modern spellings, and they've put it in, you know, uh, either fake leather or bonded leather covers. And at that note, I think it's time to bring it home. Yeah, we might as well end there. Obviously, we're not done with hermeneutics. This was a total surface job. We were just uh, giving you a definition uh, which is that it is, it is your interpretation, your method of interpretation. Now, in the future, I would like us to have another episode and we'll cover more in detail what is bad hermeneutics. We we saw an example, but what I mean is, the, let's just keep it more scholarly, bad examples versus good examples, and we'll talk about what we think is a proper hermeneutic. And, and when I say this, there are people that I listened to or have listened to in the past that I would say their hermeneutics were pretty solid and they were pretty consistent, you know, and I I will say this, you, I once heard a man say that your method of interpretation, your hermeneutic is also a roadmap to someone's eschatology because a certain type of hermeneutic will produce a certain type of eschatology, will, will probably show your eschatology. Now, I used to think that theory was pretty good, and I've actually taught that before. 
until I started listening to a handful of people that don't fit the bill. They don't fit the bill. Because um, I would say John MacArthur is a good example of what this, this teacher used to say. That it would produce a certain eschatology. And, it, and he's right. Conservative and consistent hermeneutics. I would say John MacArthur has conservative and consistent hermeneutics. He's also a premillennialist. A sort of half-hearted dispensationalist. He calls it leaky or light dispensationalism. Leaky dispensationalist. And so you have that. And and based on the person that I'm talking about, which is Chuck Missler, MacArthur fits that bill. But then you have a guy like James White, who I, who I admire greatly, who has a very tight hermeneutic on most issues, and yet his eschatology has changed over the years. He'll tell you that he was raised fundamentalist and he was a pre-dis, pre pre-trib, rapture, dispensationalist type, premillennial. He got away from that early on, like t- in his late teens. He, sure. was, he was done with that. He, he moved towards, okay, I'm basically reform. By the time he's in his 20s, he's reform. I'm basically reform. Most reform people are amillennialist. I'm an amillennialist kind of by default, but I don't really get that into eschatology, and so he just let it go. He never talked about it. A few years ago, I heard him say, I'm basically an amillennialist, and, and it's just because I don't really spend a lot of time on it. But I guess if you had to pigeonhole me and ask me what I am, I'm sort of, an amil- I'm sort of a basic traditional amillennialist. That's totally changed. In the last year, he's talked about it. He has, he has, within the last year to two years, reformulated and become pretty much a hopeful, or, or, or I don't know if it's hopeful, or, or pessimistic. Because, you know, you have two types of amillennialists, and he'll tell you that. You have the hopeful amillennialists, the positive amillennialists, and you have the negative or, or sort of uh, pessimistic amillennialist. James White has now said that he's post-millennial. I don't know if he would agree that there are two or three types of post-millennials, but I think he would. There are post-millennials that were always very optimistic about it, but I don't think that's what I would classify James White as. If I ever got a chance to talk to him, I would just ask him, probably, because I'm very interested in that. I know that he came to post-millennialism recently, so later in life, because I believe he is up in his 50s. Getting closer to the sixty I mark. Know, I think he's. I think he, he may be. He's getting 60. close to sixty because 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 Rich 60. is sixty or sixty one. Rich is oh, but Rich is older than him by two or three years. So James is getting close to sixty. Um, who knows? You're on Twitter now. You might reach out to him, uh, and we'll just see if he'll be willing to be to talk to us. I don't know. He's on the road a lot. It has been lately. I know he's gone home. I think this weekend. So hopefully, I you know I wish him well. I, I listen to him pretty regularly, and so. Um, um, but I used to think it was very easy to pigeonhole somebody's hermeneutics, and from that hermeneutic get their um, their their eschatology. But then you got a guy like Vody Bauckham; he don't fit it either. Vody's pretty tight on his hermeneutics, and he's pretty reformed, and he's also Baptist, and yet his his eschatology is decidedly not premillennial. I don't know well enough about Vody's eschatology to say whether or not he's amillennial or postmillennial, but I would say he leans towards amillennial. Which yeah, it's fifty-eight. James White's fifty-eight. Fifty-eight. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, but uh, okay. I mean, I think we'll we'll visit this again, and I, we might visit this even as as much as our next episode because I have a lot more I want to say on hermeneutics. And but we've just we've gone we've already gone an hour, and I'd just rather cut it off from here. And we'll get back in the groove of things. Hopefully, no promises. I have to work next week. But hopefully after that, within two weeks or three weeks, if your schedule permits, we will record again. And we'll do a uh, an episode or two. Maybe we'll have time to record two episodes back to back so we can get a maybe another episode on hermeneutics. And then uh, move into maybe even another lesser topic. Uh, generally speaking, on these types of... I, I consider this a big subject. And on these big subjects, we tend to do trilogies. You know, we tend to do three-part part, uh, episodes. And I, I prefer to kind of keep it that way because you can't, you can't cover it all in one hour. You can't cover it all in an hour and a half or even two hours. And so instead of being rushed or giving people a sore ear if they're listening through earbuds or headphones, you know, um, at work or, on, or, or whatever, if they're not in the car on a long trip, 
they can't really sit and listen to an extremely long uh, <laughs> uh, podcast. You know, I work I work on the road, and so because of that, I get a chance to listen to a lot of podcasts pretty much every day. I average anywhere from, depending on the length of the podcast, I, I average anywhere from five to ten episodes of different podcasts every day. And I'm one of those weird people. I'm subscribed to multiple types of podcasts, whether they be biblically related or just secular. I listen to, I'm subscribed to 57 podcasts, folks. So I listen to a lot of stuff. I'm kind of a nerd. So I've been, and I've been doing this podcast thing for, gosh, 10 years, been listening to them. Um, but if that's okay with you, Chalen, I think we'll keep it at a three-parter like we've been doing. I just think hermeneutics such a large, covers so many things. It's such an important theological thing. That doesn't mean we'll do all three in a row. Uh, but I highly we'll, doubt we'll do all three yeah, in a row. But, we'll, but I hope in the next couple of weeks we can get together again and record again on some other things. And so we'll do it like that. Um, you have anything you want to say before we no, go? No, I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm tapped. Okay. Well, you know, keeping with the spirit of, you know, I'm, I'm being facetious here, folks, so don't get irritated when I say this. You know, we're adopted into the family of God, and I believe in adoption, so we adopted a new child. We have a new member of the family. So uh, we, I want to say hello to my new son, uh, Mozart Benson. <laughs> he's a Yorkie. He's a Yorkshire Terrier. We just got him last night. He's he's so cute. He's, he's only seven weeks old. He's just a baby. He's awesome. And so Daddy's saying hi to his little baby for the first time on the podcast. <laughs> And as we close out, we'll go to my real son, uh, Colin. Did our we we've not mentioned this in a long time, but my son did our did our uh, our music, and I always get a thrill for some reason when that music starts. I like the the theme that he came up with. I just gave him an idea of what I wanted it to sound like. I said, "Kind of an Eddie Van Halen sounds what I want," and he did it. <laughs> and I've always enjoyed that music. So thank you, Colin, wherever you are. I'm sure he's at work today. He works every Saturday, so. Until next time, pray. keep us in your prayers. Pray for us as we're praying for you. We love you and God bless.